Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And I'm Michael Tynan, and I'm disappointed Jacob didn't sing a little sea shanty to, to get us in the mood for this episode. Uh, my name is Mark Bell, and I am heavily caffeinated. Excellent. So, uh, yes, as indicated by the sea shanty reference, we're going nautical, lads. Strap your cap- captain's hats on and we'll duke it out. Who gets to be the master? Who gets to be the commander? And who gets to be the ship? Uh, it's getting... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that came from. But Who gets to be on the far about... side of the world, maybe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're talking about Master and Commander, colon, the far side of the world, uh, a film from 2003. Um, I'll give my one sentence summary and we'll go in a bit more about this film as usual I don't think you'd be uh, you know it, it wouldn't be that bad if you listen to this without having watched the movie uh, just if you're interested in the era at all it's basically just a jumping off point for us to talk about what was going on but if you have seen the movie and forgotten about it like most people we're here to talk about it for a bit and maybe uh, maybe you'll want to rewatch it um, so my summary of the plot taking all history out of it is two ships play a cat and mouse game across the sea And one captain struggles with his motivations and his crew as he becomes increasingly obsessed with catching his prey. Sounds about right. Excellent, Jacob. Yeah, Yeah. It's a real cat and mouse movie. Yeah, it's a real cat and mouse movie. It is indeed. Uh, Do you have a few more details that actually go into the the movie, Michael, on when it was made and so on? Yeah, of course. So um, it was released in November 2003. It's First of all, it made a ton of money, actually. It made $212 million. So for years, there has actually been talk about a sequel. They kept making fucking Pirates of the Caribbean movies, even though no one <laughs> asked them to. But they didn't make a uh, another one of these movies, which is an absolute gem, if you haven't seen it anyway. Uh, it's directed by Peter Weir, um, who I didn't realize, but he, he actually made The Truman Show. Uh, yeah, which, and Dead Poets you know, Society, too. That was him, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and it's it's the t- like both of those movies, especially the Truman Show. Like, it's such an odd movie that it, that stays with you forever. And I think yeah. this movie as well, you might forget the plot entirely, but you'll still think, God, wasn't Russell Crowe brilliant as an admiral on a British Navy warship? You know, <laughs> even many years later. Um, so yeah, it's written by Peter Weir too and John Coley. Uh, it has a very healthy 85% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, you don't see them every day of the week. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's actually based on a series of nov- novels uh, called Master and Commander, um, or, or what's kind of called the Aubrey Maturin series, and by a guy called Patrick O'Brien, and basically follows this doctor, uh, this doctor, uh, and the captain around on their adventures around the oceans um, in the Napoleonic era. Um, the book itself, or this particular movie, isn't based on any particular book itself. It's sort of a, a an amalgamation of lots of different teams, you know. Uh, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you'd enjoy it. Yeah, it's sort of, from that series, there's like 20 books in that series, right? And it sort of takes elements from several of the novels rather than following specifically 
like just only one of those books, right? Isn't that fair to say? It's a bit of a yeah. catch-all, yeah, yeah. And uh, but yeah. like as we'll go into, it gives you a great snapshot of you know the British Army, uh, the Napoleonic era, the pressures that every each side was under, and the kind of momentous events that were taking place uh, around. Uh, all over Europe and America and all at this time during this revolutionary time. But we we get to live within a small little ship for two and a, two and a half hours or whatever the length of the film is. And you really live and breathe that experience when you're, when you're watching the movie, I feel. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, I remember watching this and I, I don't think I liked it very much when I originally watched it because it wasn't what I was led to expect from the trailer. And I think uh, I, I would assume uh, that's just from the cover, you might not know what to expect from this because it's not an adventure film. Um, it's not an action film either. It's a war film. Um, it's It's very much got all the tropes of a classical war film, the sort that spends most of its time between battles. Like, (laughs) you know, the sort where it's, like I said, it's cat and mouse game across the sea, but it's not anything like, say, Pirates of the Caribbean, obviously, even though it might even be described. Like, basically, if you take the plot, it's it's got a couple of combined elements, but it is very much immersing you in everything of being on a ship be it which can be the boredom of it as well honestly like Mm. (laughs) uh i think everyone who's watched this can agree yes that was very well put together and a lot of work went into it um but for me personally even now even though i do uh, like it it's also not very exciting um and and as you said michael it made about 200 million but it also cost about 150 million to make so it only made about 50 million compare that to pirates of the caribbean came out the same year uh and it cost about the same but it made 600 million so that was just an astronomical amount so that's the reason they keep making them and yeah so i was gonna opinion, say that'll explain why one has sequels and the other one doesn't right yeah <laughs> that's it where it's uh, yeah it made like you know six times uh, its budget pirates of the caribbean whereas this one made 50 million but i don't think i i don't bring that up to go like you know i i only want pirates in my films it's just that i think audience expectation was a bit misaligned maybe or even now it's like when you when i started watching it i was like oh yeah that's not what this film is because this film is quite different from from what you'd think and similarly also it was nominated for 10 oscars uh all the big ones as well and it did win best cinematography and best sound editing which it was well deserved but it also had the misfortune of coming out the same year as lord of the rings the return of the king which is the lord of the rings film they decided to give all the oscars to because the earlier ones hadn't really gotten any um so all of these factors combined it has just led to master and commander being uh, more or less forgotten right except by the likes of us yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like i i think the point you make about the the trailer and the posters and stuff maybe giving a different impression as to what the movie is is definitely true it feels to me like they sort of used russell crowe's uh fame at that time after gladiator and sort of snuck in a more classical war film on the basis that people would think oh it's gladiator on the sea but it's not at all. Like, it's really not at all. It's much more of a, a period drama. Yeah, and for me personally, I was watching, and you've uh, both heard me go on about this uh, at length, but I was watching Hornblower, which is a TV show, uh, which is basically this, but with all the fun bits. Uh, like, Hornblower is also based on a book series, a uh, slightly older one, uh, exactly the same genre of, like, men at sea 
very British, wave the Union Jack, <laughs> give Frenchie the old wallop. Like, it's exactly the same setting. Uh, so this episode, historically, it also covers Hornblower, if you're going to want to go watch that. But it's got more of a, a more romanticized view of it, which also leads to more swashbuckling and kind of, you know, fun. Uh, so that's when yeah. I was 13 years old watching this. That's kind of what I was hoping for. And I was like, this is going on for a while, isn't it? Uh, I do, to <laughs> clarify, I do like it more this time. I especially like that our main character, Captain Jack by Russell Crowe, uh, is a piece of shit. That's great. <laughs> like, it's it's great that he's just kind of not a good person. Um in my view, and Paul Bettany is excellent as usual, playing the ship's surgeon, and it's the relationship between these two men that sort of stand at the center of this film. Uh, as and I, and the I books understand. as well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's from what I understand. Uh, apparently, Paul Bettany in in well, I was about to say Paul Bettany in the books, uh, not the actor, the character that he plays was also like a spy in the books and all all this interesting stuff that. Kind of got left out. Paul Bettany now is a ship surgeon who really wants to go to the Galapagos Islands and be Darwin before Darwin was Darwin. Um, uh, that's yeah, I, one one standout scene in this film is um, the doctor and a little boy who is a midshipman, I believe. Uh, is it Blakely? And he's, a, I think he's only about 13 or something like that. And both of them are wandering around the Galapagos Islands uh, measuring... Uh, giant tortoises and it, like it's not something you see on film every day of the week unless yeah. it's a David Attenborough <laughs> thing you know so to see this in a blockbuster film a guy like with a stethoscope trying to measure how 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 the length of a, a turtle's neck is just fucked up anyway it was my thoughts think, on it <laughs> I, I think it's like like if I know you're sort of being uh, you're being a bit facetious there like but I think the point is actually a good one this film doesn't get made today nobody invests that kind of money in a movie like this these yeah. days like it would just it would just never get made you know P peter weir and russell crowe aside like uh, that's why i feel like they sort of they sort of snuck it in they sort of snuck it past the studio yeah give us 150 million i'm gonna make gladiator on the sea yeah yeah no honestly yeah, yeah there's gonna be loads of battles and it's gonna be this and high adventure and stuff people will love it it'll be great no this is galapagos and like the surgeon walking around measuring tortoises yeah, and yeah. you know, any other film that has, you know, this many ships on the posters and whatever, you expect it to be an adventure where they go from different ports and do different things. They never yeah. fucking get off the shit thing. <laughs> like, they're always on this boat for two and a half hours. And uh, yeah, they, you know, they plots, subplots about like, uh, they start talking about who's cursed, who's made the wind go bad, and like that goes on for a while. The Jonah, like, yeah, the Jonah, yeah. who's the Jonah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I and think that shows you a little bit about how superstitious that the, the superstitions that existed at the time as well, you know. So yeah. there, there must be some value to it. But I felt so sorry for that poor fucker. Uh, yeah, yeah, who they called Jonah, you know. <laughs> yeah, just to sort of, I just meant to to illustrate that, like they, everything's on this ship. It's all about the ship. Even like, yeah, their brief stop on the Galapagos Islands is all about furthering that but anyway i we're not here to talk just about this film i'm sure we'll you know weave in and out of it um but let's talk about where it's set uh because we open am i right in that it's 1805 it's april yeah. 1805 yeah 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 so and where are we at historically where where this is taking off michael yeah so captain jack as we will call him or russell crowe he's basically he, he's he's a the captain of the HMS Surprise, which is sort of a man of war ship, um, and he's stationed off Brazil in 1805, 
And he's a small part of a global conflict, basically. Um, and he, his, his own task in the film is to basically pursue and destroy uh, French naval vessels who are going all over the world trying to destroy Britain's uh, trade and commerce uh, effectively to weaken Britain at this time, you know? Um, so Captain Aubrey, essentially, he is, a, he, is, he is our eyes and we are viewing the Napoleonic Wars through his eyes, if that makes sense, you know? Um, at the time, this is 1805, so this is two years after war has just bro broken out again between France and Britain. Um, essentially, since the time of the 17, since 1789 with the French Revolution, uh, France has been on, on, nearly a continuous war with Britain. Um, and there was only a brief year uh, when they had a peace treaty called the Treaty of Amiens, when, but that didn't last long and uh, hostilities resumed. And we're basically opening up in the middle of this global conflict for sup supremacy of the seas between Britain and France um, uh, at this time, you know. Um, this period in Britain was called the Great Terror. Basically, the, the plan here was, the, the reason it's called the Great Terror in Britain is that Napoleon planned to strangle Britain's trade abroad, all over the world, by sending out fleets, just like the ones illustrated in the film. Um, and also, though, he was planning a massive invasion of Britain. Um, and this is the context that is really important to understand with this film, is that uh, like this is a fight to the death. At this time, Napoleon is looking for, as he quoted, we have six centuries of insults to avenge. And he was planning uh, to, he was mobilizing uh, his whole country to build a massive fleet and to create a massive force to invade Britain at this time. Um, now, what he was looking into doing, like his, his plan was essentially to uh, attack Britain attack every English settlement from Asia, Africa, the Caribbean to Ireland. And interestingly, he even planned on invading Ireland as well, which is, is very famous and well known in Ireland, but outside of Ireland, not so much, you know. Uh, so this is kind of the, the context. Uh, Russell Crowe and his little boat are just a small cog in a much larger war, I suppose, you know. Yeah, and that's think, sort of the thing as well, because we're not anywhere near anything that you're describing, but the film does a fairly decent job of making us feel uh, like it is important what's going on. Yeah, like at home, to put this into context, Napoleon sold Louisiana for 54 million francs to the American government so that he could fund his, his naval uh, building program and the invasion of Britain. Now, into the, 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 the quantity of ships this guy was putting together, he had 2,343 ships and three French crack uh, corps of troops numbering nearly 167,000 men that he was planning to invade Kent with. Now, the British, as we all know... Yeah, the, Poor the British... Kent. The, Poor El Kent, this, hasn't got a chance. Hasn't got a Kent. Like the, the the British strength was in its navy. Its ground forces were nowhere near comparable to what uh, France had at this time. France had the largest population in Europe, one of the largest populations in the world. It had massive resources, manpower. 
its many years of expansion had meant that it had swallowed up the navies of other countries. So it like I think what's really interesting when I was reading about this period is it Napoleon basically commandeered the entire Dutch navy for his own purposes, and he left the Dutch with just three ships to protect their coasts. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, uh, like in terms of this, so he he was really going all out and he saw this as a way, he said if he could beat Britain, then no one, he would have no way, he would have no more rivals really. Because Britain, what's really important to realize is Britain was the money man in Europe at the time. It was funding all of the coalitions against that Austria, Russia, Prussia, all of the countries that were trying to topple Napoleon in one way or the other. All this money was coming from Britain's industrial revolution, essentially. Mm. And Napoleon wanted to cut off British trade so so the British would no longer have any cash to pay for this. And also nearly starved them into submission, I suppose, in a way. He knew if he could cut off their trade that they wouldn't be, they, they, they would lose their global power, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I mean, France, as you said, sounds like they have a massive superiority on land, but Britain is known for their navy. I guess it comes with being a an island nation with, you know, money to spare. Uh, I don't really know much about that sort of uh, aspect of it. Does anyone want to go into British naval uh, background? Because obviously it's what the film is about. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting uh, point uh, that Michael makes. Just, to, just before talking about the, the Royal Navy, just to, to sort of make a point about France. Like, I think in, in, in modern uh, society, there's this, like, there's this joke about, you know, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, like the French who can't win a war. Um, and I, I just want to point out that that's a really recent bias based on World War II alone. Before that, I mean, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say Napoleon was just slapping the shit out of absolutely everyone. They were just... They were at, like, everyone declared war on the French Republic when it, when it kicked off, and they just beat everyone consistently again and again and again and this year 1805 even there's a there's a later on after the movie set there's a massive land battle called the battle of austerlitz which is a huge alliance between austria and russia and napoleon is outnumbered depending on who you believe it's close to two to one but it's one of the most spectacular military victories in history like he's absolutely no right to win the battle and he does and personally does it like commanding the armies and stuff so to say that uh the the situation for britain is dire is an understatement napoleon has brought in something that's called the grand armee which is this massive mobilization of manpower that none of the other countries had really conceived of before he's invented something that we call total war where the entire country is geared up towards creating this military machine so the army that michael's referencing that's sort of pitched ready to invade uh, England, ready to invade uh, Britain. That's about half the Grand Armada. It's an enormous number of people, which is just way, way beyond what anyone else is able to put in the field. And any time they do put somebody in the field, Napoleon just turns up and kicks the shit out of you. Like So it, it, it's an interesting situation for him to be in. There's a lot of parallels often drawn by British historians between this period and then World War II, um, obviously this time facing off against the Nazis and the, the sort of the Battle of Britain being being the, the modern equivalent and the British Navy standing being really, really important. Britain um, at this time, um, it's it's after the American Revolution, which you might think is sort of a a negative turning point for the British Empire, but actually the opposite is true. the The empire goes from strength to strength at this point. It's started to make inroads into into all around Asia, so it's starting to get uh, control of trade routes all around Southeast Asia. And obviously, to do that, it needs a navy, and the British navy has been 
sort of the darling of the public and the darling of the crown since the time of Elizabeth I, so 300 years previous. And in that 300 years, they focused a lot of their professionalism and a lot of the the wealth and the increasing wealth and expertise on producing the world's greatest navy. And it is unquestionably the world's greatest navy. Some of the some of the stuff I liked about this movie actually was the accuracy in which it showed the professionalism of the midshipmen where they were like running drills on how to fire the cannons and things like that. They were just beyond everyone else. So they could fire at a rate that was faster than other people because they just had a, a level of professionalism that was different. Their land forces, the armed forces of the British Empire at this time, they're actually way smaller than you might think. The professional British army at this time is is nowhere near Napoleon's size. It's not not even a tenth, maybe, the size of Napoleon's army. But their navy is so severe that you just can't get near them. There's a line in, yeah. the, in the movie where Russell Crowe says, uh, um, there's an army standing ready to invade England. So this ship is England. You know, he had one of these great Russell Crowe speeches. That's very much that's very much the case. The navy is, is everything. Because if, if Napoleon lands troops, they ain't going to be able to stop him. Yeah, and Britain it was basically turning itself into a fortress at this time. So it was under a guy called William Pitt, who's very famous prime minister, and uh, George the Third of uh, of England as well. And is they, this Pitt the younger or Pitt the elder? Uh, this is Pitt the younger, I believe. Yeah, unless I'm mistaken, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always mix the <laughs> I think two. Pitt the younger, yeah. <laughs> Who I know and, from Blackadder. From the yeah, I was going to say you you absolutely pull, you absolutely pulled that out of Blackadder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the Plinies um, and Pits. I just know they're some of them are young, some of them are old, some of them are yeah. in between, some of them are just right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he but basically Britain knew that its only chance was to maintain naval superiority, so they did mobilize all men between the ages of like 17 and 55 so they were drilling and training a land army they built massive fortifications even those all over ireland as well you might know those martello there, towers yeah, yeah. yeah that there. you, there's one that there's they're they're dotted all around the coast of britain and ireland and they were defensive structures uh in order to warn of invasion uh but the main thing that was preventing the uh the invasion of Britain, I suppose, was a massive naval blockade. So the British had uh, superiority in their naval navy, um, and they were able to basically, although the French, they could look, they could look at the French. Like there was only a few miles between England and and the coast, of, the northern coast of France. They could see that both were building ships. They could see that both were building batteries and guns, and they could see massive efforts being undertaken, like Napoleon took the labor class of of most of Belgium and he requisitioned them to just build ships, you know? So this I was like, a I like serious... You requisitioned them. You're building ships for us now, but we don't want to. I didn't ask you what you wanted. You're doing it. A hundred percent, yeah. Um, so, like, there, there was a massive effort underway to fortify Britain, but its main... The, the main advantage it had was the French ships couldn't get out of port. So the French ships in Brest and uh, Lorient and Boulogne, they, they couldn't, the, anytime they tried to, to leave port, the British under um, Admiral Cornwallis, who was basically, he's, he's a lesser known hero at this time, but he's responsible for, in a lot of ways, for protecting Britain from invasion. He didn't give the French uh, any any bit of a, a any any bit of leeway to to escape anytime they looked like they were leaving port he'd send in the british army and he, or the british the british navy and he'd harry them back into port so that was kind of their biggest advantage britain could 
could, although the French had a, Brit, Britain could contain France with its yeah. navy, and as long as it continued to do so, it was safe, basically, you know. So the French response then is is something that's referred to as the continental system. So Napoleon, because of his his land superiority, and it sort of reminds me of something we talked about briefly in a previous episode. Where we were talking about the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, where. Athens' strength is in the sea, Sparta's strength is on land, and they can't really fight each other. And you know what I mean? And it's sort of, they're kind yeah. of going, well, if you were here, we'd kick your ass. And then the other guy are like, well, if you were on the sea, we'd kick your ass. So what Napoleon basically does is he, he just through force of arms and alliance structures and puppet states and all that kind of thing, he basically forces mainland Europe to stop trading with mm. Britain to whatever extent he can do that. But of course, as Michael says, his ports are largely locked down, so there's not really much he can do around enforcing um, their trade from their own empire, their own sort of commercial empire. Uh, yeah, actually, during the these wars as well, up until 1810, Sweden and Great Britain were uh, allies against Napoleon, but then we were, uh, Swedes were defeated. Um, and let's see, Sweden officially declared war on uh, Britain. So there is like a Wikipedia article for an Anglo-Swedish war where nobody ever got hurt or like nobody yeah, got killed, just... nobody even got hurt. It was just very much a formality. Um, we agree I mean, we're at war, we're not going to fight, but we're definitely at war. <laughs> yeah. From And isn't the, um, the modern <laughs> king of Sweden, is he's descended from one of Napoleon's generals, isn't he? Oh, let's Jacob. not worry about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just breeze over that. Uh. Yeah, this brief war with Britain from 1810 to 1812, which is a year and a few months, and uh, no acts of war occurred during the conflict, it says here. <laughs> so that's so kind of an example of the sort of... Uh, yeah, it is, if, you, if you need to have a war, it's a good war to have. Um, but yeah, not exactly what you were talking about, but sort of along the same vein of... Uh, nations being pressured into going against yeah. Britain. Yeah, yeah. Some of the advantages that Britain would have had over Napoleon when it comes to their navy would have been, for example, they had like an independent admiralty board which knew how to run a navy, you know? It knew how to order supplies, it knew how to um, arrange different uh, squadrons in different areas. It They were experts in their field, whereas Napoleon... Um, it was a micromanager, like it to an awful extent. Now that really, really worked well for his army, in because he knew he knew artillery, he knew land forces, he knew strategy. Like he was one of the best strategists since uh, Julius Caesar, you could argue. Um, but the fucker knew nothing about the sea, so he was dictating to his uh, a lot of the time the problem was napoleon was dictating where ships should be every single little move movement but he didn't actually know what he was doing and this made the french navy very very ineffective at this time compared to the british the british navy mm, interesting um so uh that is interesting because i feel like um again this is all uh supposition but uh Napoleon, obviously, the empire he was building, it was on his shoulders alone. Like, his micromanagement, all the triumphs were Napoleon's triumphs, and so on. Whereas here, yes, Lord Nelson, obviously, is... Uh, he's not in the film, but he, he's talked he's about it a lot. He's referenced, though, right? Yeah, he's, he's referenced talking, a yeah. lot. Yeah, and, and, you know, he's obviously a great hero for Britain, but I get a sense from other sort of historical fiction at the time where, you know, obviously... Um, 
Napoleon and France, or the French Empire, they're one and the same thing. Whereas in Britain, um, because as you said, they have like generally got experienced people in places. So, and obviously the monarch isn't doing doing much at the time <laughs> either but like it it has a system that can run on its own and uh obviously lots of flaws and and stuff as well but just as far as napoleon when napoleon's out of the picture that means france is out of the picture um right this is yeah, it and I like th- there's a political instability yeah it's underneath napoleon i think it's it's, exactly. it's fair to say that doesn't really exist in in britain britain has much longer established uh institutions and its level of professionalism across the board is just superior to 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 France. I mean, France, France obviously has professionalism in terms of its army, but its navy. You know, if they're being micromanaged to that extent, then it's it's difficult for the experts to actually have the impact that they were having on the British on the British navy. And as well, Napoleon was he was a bit ridiculous in his demands. Like he would order, "I want uh, thirty new ships built there." I don't care how you do it. The ships would be built, but he would have like no new, no crews to man it. So the ships would just end up being beached and they couldn't do anything. So, you know, he, like I said, his big problem was a brilliant general on land, but on sea, Jesus, don't let him anywhere near the place, you know? Yeah, and he didn't really get uh, near the place either, but we'll, we'll get into that uh, a little <laughs> bit later. But. I guess, yeah, talking about the accuracy of the film itself and how it relates to this context that we've set up, it is very good, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, though, I, I mean, I. <laughs> That's all I mean, that needs ver- to be said. Yes, it's very good. It's, um, as we mentioned, it's based on a series of books that are fictional. There's inspiration from real life people and events. Um, there's, you know, maneuvers where the sh- Captain Jack didn't. Which just struck me as Captain Jack in this and Pirates of the Caribbean. I just realized that now. Uh, but So that's <laughs> a bit of a shame. But uh, obviously he, he like disguises the ship as a whaler. He, you know, has these tricks up his sleeves in, the, in his cat and mouse game. And more or less these are all real things that happened. It's just an amalgamation and a combination and trying to get an exciting story out of it. Um, but in how it's put together, the sound and look and life on a boat, uh, what do we reckon uh, in relation to all this? Well, one thing that they did um, that I, I thought was interesting that they actually were like did it accurately was that they showed the midshipmen um, on the British on the British uh, on the HMS Surprise. They are actually kids. They're you know they were young teenagers. They were like 13, 14, that kind of age. And that is true. That is, that is the age that those uh, that those um, officers well not officers but those midshipmen would actually have been. And it, that that was the that was the done thing at the time. The British uh, Navy would recruit from all around. Britain uh, and Ireland and, its, and the various colonies and it would take kids in, often kids of poor people, often kids of soldiers or kids of uh, um, naval officers and bring them on to serve on these ships at really that young an age and I, I thought it was interesting that they actually showed that and that they showed the, the, the sort of the the grime and the, the dirt and the, just the, yeah. the sort of the, the, how dark and horrible and you know um, sort of compact the whole t- situation was for the sailors um, because I think and, and and maybe not on Hornblower, Jacob. But I'll defer to your knowledge on that. But I think there's a tendency um, for the movies of a similar uh, theme, sort of classically, to to uh, 
um, depict this kind of situation in a, in a bit more splendor and a bit grander and a, a little less grimy. And while there is obviously the splendor and, and, and whatever, everything looks a bit used and sort of worn yeah. down. And yeah. uh, like um, the costuming is quite good in that respect. It, it looks like, yeah, this was a great thing when it was made, but he's been wearing this for five years pretty much non stop and it's got sweat stained and it's like the button, some of the buttons aren't really quite there. And you know what I mean? All of that kind of stuff. Which, you know, realistically, if you spend that much time on the sea, and we're talking the Atlantic and the Pacific. You're sailing, chasing the Asheron, the French ship that they're after. You're chasing after it sort of forever. And, you know, it's going to be pretty grim. And I thought it did a really good job of portraying that. I liked that it showed how discipline was so important on these ships. And that, you know, if uh, there's one there's one scene in the film where a a, a normal Navy uh, Navy. Uh, kind of i suppose what you'd call him what able seaman i suppose is the word that they they gave to him um he doesn't salute one of the midshipmen and because of that he's whipped you know severely so any kind of if you if you did not uh pay your respects uh where they were due then you were treated really really badly or you could have been locked up in chains or anything so it's that kind of thing which really brought uh, brought life on a ship home to you as well as that as jacob was saying earlier just boredom so when there's a scene on the ship where they have no wind you know and they're just floating just around the ocean for yeah, for weeks yeah. And you have to imagine the food, the quality of the food they would have had. It would have been all preserved stuff. Even the sh- sleeping quarters. I, I don't know. What really struck me is seeing everybody hanging kind of like from r- the roof in hammocks while they slept. It, it always reminded me like bats. You know, you see in a cave, bats hanging down. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> th- that, that kind of image. So, no, I think in accuracy, you couldn't go, you couldn't go wrong, you know. Uh, damp, cramped, uh, everything like that. It was a... It, it, and the danger as well, like there's a scene in the film where a man goes overboard and the a captain, Captain Jack has to make the decision just to cut him loose so, so that he doesn't endanger the rest of the ship. And like, imagine no life jackets at that time. So if you slip, if you were in the middle of a storm and you were blown overboard, that's the end of you, basically. Like, yeah, you're a goner. You're a goner. Yeah. That's it. And, and that could happen in a split second, you know. Uh, something could break, you could be thrown forward, and that's the end of you. So I, I really thought it brought home the, the kind of reality of what it must have been like to be on a on a ship at that time, you know. I liked as well yeah. that, it, like, essentially the, the story is a David versus Goliath kind of story too, right? I mean, like, the H- HMS Surprise is... The, the ship that it's chasing down is the is the Asheron, the French the French ship, which is just as they as they go into in sort of detail, it's just you know gargantuan in comparison to, to the surprise. But even even saying that, like, was there two hundred men on the surprise or close to two hundred men? And that's the number of people it takes to operate a ship of that size, a, a frigate, I think it is, of that size. Um, but the Asheron is just absolutely, you know, absolutely enormous. And I thought they did a good job of. Um, using these sort of stories Jacob that you alluded to earlier around like some of the tricks that he was trying to pull off some of these strategies he was trying to pull off to overcome the the superiority of the French ship and um, looking it up and like sort of what I watched a, an interview with the director Peter Weir and he was making reference to how what inspired the novels was like real stories of things that captains did during this period during during the, the and, and during generally the, the, the British uh, colonial wars and um, 
and like the the thing about you know changing the name of the ship and lowering the flag and putting up a different flag and all of these kinds of stuff, which I thought was really really interesting that they that they actually uh, you know went into into depth showing showing some of those kind of naval tricks that uh, other commanders pulled off. Obviously, Captain Jack Aubrey is fictional, but he's clearly based on you know the adventures of real men or stories that were told of real men. You know, which I, I think in too. in particular I saw a reference that a lot of the deception uh, tactics used so. Even the stuff where pretending to be a whaler, uh, you know, uh, you know, being uh, diverting them by uh, sending off a, a little uh, floating device with a, a light on it, so that they would fire in the wrong direction. There was a, yeah, a naval, was there was a, a Captain Thomas Cochrane of the HMS Speedy, apparently, and he was famous for doing this type of thing, uh, oh, really? getting out of yeah, like he he'd go a bit like Captain Jack in the in the film. He seems to look for trouble and gets by with the skin <laughs> of his teeth through kind of uh, his, his own genius and perseverance, really, you know? Yeah, regarding the grime and dirt of everything that you mentioned, Mark, uh, and not to beat this horse to death, but comparing it again to Pirates of the Caribbean, um, that film is selling a fantasy. It's showing you somewhere yes. and telling you yeah. this is where you want to be. And of course, like that Captain Jack, even though he's more incompetent than this Captain Jack, uh, you're like, yeah, I would like to. I think if I was on his crew, my life would be full of fun and adventure and, and bar fights. And like it'd be different and more <laughs> splendid than what I have now. Yeah, yeah. So they're selling a positive fantasy. This ship is doing and this film is doing everything to tell you. Oh, you don't want to be here, mate. Like these are these are bad times. These men are going Look through. Look how horrible this there. is yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah which i think is you know obviously in a sense more admirable as like art you know and and it's more interesting because it has that complexity of doing difficult things under uh, a lot of strain um but it's also i think probably part of why that's reflected in the box office as well because we it comes to the question what do we want a film to be and saying we want a film to just fulfill our fantasies is very simplistic but when we're talking about big budget hollywood films that's sort of the expectation this film does that but on a sort of more stepped back scale obviously it's more i suppose about you know valor and things like that but it's not it's not even that much about it. And I have to say as well, at the end of this film, they haven't even caught the fucking ship. They've ca- caught the ship, right? And then uh, they've let it go. And there's a cool twist where they realize that the captain of the other ship is still alive. And they keep playing mm. some music and then they're going to set after them again. And I'm like, fucking two and a half hours, they still haven't got definitive And you still didn't do me. it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I didn't mind it. I actually, I, I kind of liked it. It's a good twist that it's sort of an ongoing thing. But it's also like, there. Honestly, not much happens in this film. <laughs> it is slow. It, it, it's it's slow. And like the point you make about about like the comparison with, with other Hollywood movies, I think it's really really uh, stark when there's um, early on the first encounter that this HMS Surprise has with the Asheron, where the Asheron fires on them, and the cannonballs just rip through the hole, and there's like splinters of wood flying out, and it's not yeah. it's not cool or glorious or it's grim. Like it's re- like yeah. people's faces are getting cut up and their fingers getting blown off and all this kind of stuff whereas if you compare that with like Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever you hit with a cannonball and there's an explosion and the captain gets thrown far back into the water but then it's okay he climbs back onto the ship and gets into a sword fight you know what I mean whereas what actually happens is your face is full of splinter and you're dead you know what I mean like there's no no glory you know it's like you're missing or if you're yeah 
if you're lucky, you just have an amputated arm or something yeah, like exactly. you see in exactly. the film. You've yeah. got gangrene now, and uh, there's no there's no vitamin C, so you've also got scurvy, and uh, yeah. you know, this have is a biscuit, really <laughs> have a biscuit. Yes, yeah. down there you'd be grand. You know, it's it's, it's that, grim. Like it doesn't glorify it at all, which is good. But that type of grimness as well, it, it is very appealing, and it's sort of what war films of this type have going for them too. Uh, where I don't think any of the films we've discussed so far in real history would be like a war film to this extent, right? Because, say, you know, obviously 300 Sparta uh, is a fantasy, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, that grimness where it it gives the sense, uh, it gives more of a reputable sort of sense to what's actually happening in the films. It makes it you feel like what's happening is more realistic because it doesn't yeah, pay it's not heroic fantasy on it's, top of it, <laughs> which is yeah, great. Exactly. And it's, I think it, it's, it, it, it's not it, heroic; it's barbaric. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also love some of the, uh, the Captain Jack sort of. Uh, different toasts he gives and stuff like that i also like like for what what he says something like to wives and sweethearts may they never meet yeah. you know and it breaks into <laughs> a, a violin session as well you know who knew that russell crowe was such a good violinist i never knew that you know so that's at least we learned that much never did like he's a man, of, man he, of many talents you know? he learned for for the film and uh as did paul bettany learned the cello i think he's playing uh or maybe a bass yeah it's a cello um and the, the violin wasn't in the budget um so he he bought it himself and that violin wow. was then auctioned off years later <laughs> like in 2018 or something for like a hundred thousand uh, pa- uh well uh, dollars i suppose <laughs> so yeah it's mad no his, his toasts are very good it was sort of what i mentioned as well of him being kind of a piece of shit where he's like yeah he's you know, holding these toasts and like, like holding a huge party with the officers, and we just see the misery of the common man. And he's like had his chef prepare uh, a, a dessert that's in the shape of the Galapagos Islands, and like carving it up for his <laughs> his men. And like, I, I, he's very charismatic, but kind of you know obsessive. And I, I honestly feel like the film maybe could have done more to explore the theme of like him getting more and more obsessive about it because honestly he's really obsessive about catching this uh ship from page one you know from the straight very away yeah he straight doesn't away. really change it's, much during it he it is when uh the the physician paul bettany's physician gets shot he kind of has a, a more of a like oh shit maybe i'm being a bit ridiculous here and maybe it's more important to keep my men alive than to do this one thing um but but it doesn't really delve that deeply into it because we're kind of more in the day-to-day of this ship yeah like he he admits himself that the likelihood of friend uh finding the friendship in the pacific ocean uh is like looking for an honest man in parliament he says you know uh so you know (laughs) he he he, like he he realizes himself how ridiculous it is but his he's got this sense of duty despite all the storms the lack of wind the loss of life he still you know is intent on pursuing this ship even though his own ship is by by his own admission only maybe half as powerful as the french one but that's where we see how important the use of deception and sort of guerrilla tactics uh, are to actually victory in some cases. And to be fair to Lucky Jack, like he earned his name, you know, uh, he definitely managed to, to, to destroy this French boat anyway, you know. 
So as as we said, this cat and mouse game by the end of the film, it is kind of unresolved. Like it's it's resolved, but it's left on a note of like there was more to come, which I didn't feel was angling for a sequel necessarily because I feel like a sequel would probably be a totally different situation. Um, but it's appropriate that it's left unresolved because, of course, the greater conflict of the war and the cat and mouse game between uh, well. Napoleon and leadership in Britain, whether it be Lord Nelson or whoever, that's also unresolved. So I wanted to ask what sort of happens after this? Because obviously it's interesting that a historical film goes into such a specific moment in history and then just ends with, and that's where we are. Like we don't get to see a big historical change in this big historical film, which is really interesting. So what's what happens after the end of this film? I suppose the big thing that happened in 1805 mark would be uh the battle of trafalgar no yeah i mean i think like 1805 is is really a pivotal year like the battle i mentioned earlier austerlitz that's also in 1805 um that's in that's in december and there's also a, a battle against a, a prussian group about the battle of jena that napoleon also wins but i think sticking to naval warfare and the, and the sort of the pivotal battle here yeah it would have to be um I think it's October 1805, the Battle of Trafalgar, which is an enormously sort of pivotal so battle in British history. And yeah, how this did is when we get to the square. <laughs> <laughs> His invasion it took place, obviously, and he just what you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go on. Where's the real Trafalgar? <laughs> the real Trafalgar is about. I, I think it's it's just off the coast of Gibraltar, the Rock of Gibraltar. So it wouldn't be. Yeah, it's, it'd be just off Spain, really. Um, I suppose what happens is the French and the British uh, fleet, as seen in the film, are chasing each other all over, all over the world, really. Um, but eventually the main French fleet under Villeneuve, Admiral Villeneuve, and I, I should say as well, it wasn't just a French fleet. The Spanish Navy was included Spanish as well, with yeah, the French yeah. too. Um, they, they eventually uh, kind of met their, their, met their match in Nelson, so we were talking earlier about Nelson and how famous he is. Like he he he, he famously came, on the day of the Battle of Trafalgar, he famously said, "England expects that every every man will do his duty." You know, um. So he was kind of he was he was he's this heroic figure to the British people, but essentially, uh, the British fleet under Nelson, which is, you know, it's it, it, it's it's not. Actually, it's not the full British fleet that Nelson has. Um, I think that he only has 27 ships of the line, whereas the French and Spanish Navy has 33. But they all end up meeting just off the coast of Spain on this day in October in 1805. And Nelson uses tactics, essentially, to destroy the French fleet. He, he, um, he kind of rather than meeting them head on he has this tactic of splitting the french fleet and spanish fleet in three and getting in very close to them and what's extraordinary is that with this battle it went on all day it was this like it we there would never been a naval battle like this before it was only about the distance of a mile but you had 60 ships going hell for leather which was the highest technology, these ships were the highest technology of their days, all squashed into this one little area, just blowing each other up. And what's extraordinary is the British didn't lose one ship. 
which, if you think about it, is crazy. So they were outnumbered by the French and Spanish, but they didn't even use one ship. The tactics the British used, and the the British were always famous for superior uh, firepower too, and the way they fired their cannons. That was all came into good effect, and they essentially captured the they captured the destroyed and captured the French fleet. You know, um, now one of the sad things that happened is famously that. A single musket fire from a French, uh, a French soldier from a French ship, actually randomly ended up shooting uh, Nelson. So the hero of the day got shot, and he ju- and he he died on the ship that day. But he did die knowing that he had defeated the, the French fleet. So at least he had that little bit of a, uh, you know, compensation before he went. I I think it's hard to. It's one of those. Um, like I was saying earlier, Jacob, obviously it's it's the naval equivalent of that. This is an unbelievable victory. This is such a such a stunning naval victory that, like you mentioned, the square. So the square in London, um, Trafalgar Square, is named after this victory. There's statues of uh, Lord Nelson, including the one that used to be on the spot in in the middle of O'Connell Street in Dublin, which was uh, destroyed by the. Uh, provisional IRA in 1955, a piece of which I actually have in my room, a little piece of the rock that used to be uh, part of Nelson's neck, apparently. Um, yeah, but he, you he heard became it here. The, the provisional IRA, he says, Mark, how old are you really? <laughs> <laughs> you were clearly there. It's no clear. comment, no comment. Um, but yeah, but no, like like, he, I mean, look, Nelson is, a, Nelson is as close to, just two sort of pivotal characters from this time one is one is uh, Wellington the Iron Duke and the other one is Horatio Nelson the the, the head yeah. of the, the British Navy and he's a complete icon just a, just an icon of naval warfare globally um, and a lot of uh, the British reputation um, in the, the century that follows is sort of based on the back of this just spectacular victory that they pull off here well, like in terms of losses, even the French, Spanish, uh, the French and Spanish lost four thousand five hundred men in that battle, whereas the British they lost uh, just over four hundred. So, whatever the British had going for them that day, nuts. like that's it, nuts, it, it, you know, it's I mean. incredible. Um, and the battle, the reason I suppose it's so memorialized even to this day is that that essential that battle and Britain's uh, winning of it that meant that napoleon's plans no matter how big his invasion force was he was never going to get across the channel so he could no longer invade britain that was off the cards britain itself was safe um and it also ensured that essentially the british dominated they had full naval superiority for the guts of a century after you know they 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 had they were unrivaled and that allowed them obviously to expand their their empire, their trade, and all the benefits that came from that, you know. The other advantage, sort of immediate advantage that this that this battle gives the British is that while their army, yes, is much much smaller and maybe not a match for the French Grand Armée in open combat, the fact that the British retain the ability to project force, so they can actually move troops around via sea in a way that the French can't do. They can march over land, but you can't. They can't just drop troops off somewhere in the Mediterranean without the French or without the British Royal Fleet just turning up and blowing them to bits. And it's a sort of a thing that's that's uh, less understood and maybe not, not well discussed when it comes to military history. If you don't have ability to project force, it doesn't matter how big your army is if you can't put it somewhere. Yeah. 
So the, the British have the huge agility in terms of where they can land troops and how they can influence things. And that is a large part, it plays a large part in actually turning the wars later on and, and leading to um, Wellington's uh, activities in Portugal and Spain and then there's a revolution Spain, against yeah. Napoleon and Spain and so on. Um, and their ability to, to just kind of move with impunity uh, across the seas is a massive, massive part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, just on, on Nelson, there's nothing like getting killed at a big victory to secure your place. Yeah. It's in classic, history. isn't it? Pro- I mean, it's classic. Proper <laughs> martyrdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. I may be putting you on the spot here, but does either of you know anything really about the Battle of the Nile? Because I know it's mentioned in the film and I only just remembered it. It's, uh, you know, Lord Nelson, one of the things that in this film, they're talking about him in such glowing terms. It's because of nelson's performance in the past few years battle of the nile i believe was another decisive victory there yeah Um, like it would have been so like napoleon when he when napoleon before he was emperor he invaded uh egypt and that was to hurt britain essentially to deny egypt and you know all uh, it's it's really strategic importance to the to the british um but Although he got amazing propaganda for it, Napoleon, and he managed to, you know, bring back artifacts that still reside in Paris today that should be in <laughs> Egypt, depending on... It should uh, be returned. Depending, yes, it should be yeah. returned. Like the, the Louvre Museum is another crime scene, similar to the British, the British Museum, yeah. full of stolen goods, essentially. Um, but what happened was that Napoleon actually had to retreat away from uh, Egypt eventually because uh, and get back to France because he knew that the British were blockading him he couldn't he couldn't move his uh, his um he, he although he was in Egypt he couldn't he couldn't leave Egypt uh, with his army intact because of the British uh, uh, kind of blockade around him, you know. Uh, so the British a, had a, a very successful... Logi- logistical warfare, right, from the British. They just locked mm. him in and they're like, fine, you have Egypt, but you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything with it. So he's like, oh shit. And Napoleon, like, have to, a, have to, yeah. as a, b- a bit of a dick move, he basically just, like, sailed off on his own back to France and left his armies uh, to kind of... Uh, sink or swim more or less while he went back to see where else he could find some glory you know yeah yeah um so this has brought us to not just the end of the film and i guess it hasn't brought us to the end of the napoleonic wars but it's such a broad like it's it's so full of potential for adventure and for historical fiction because there's so many small grade heroes like the characters in this film even though they're fictional but the sort of like back and forth the sort of clever plots and twists and maneuvers that happen during the war not just you know battle of trafalgar and and these huge conflicts but also just the the sort of taking of a single ship could be uh enormously dramatic and like clever and when done against the odds uh it's it is a period that i may have read more historical fiction based in this period than than most others uh granted a lot of the historical fiction i've read has been alternate history fiction where they also throw in dragons <laughs> or magic or some shit because yeah, i feel well, like that adds <laughs> a bit of spice uh yeah, well, his majesty's well, dragon the temeraire series jonathan strange and mr gnarl all, all kind of have helped me uh, get a grasp of 
obviously not what happened really, but at least the chronology of events, you know, because it does fall. Usually they'll follow a similar timeline, but then have a chapter at the end to say, actually, without the dragons, this is what happened. And weirdly, that's how I learned a lot of it. But in general, I think it is uh, such a, an era that's kind of underexplored in film, at least, right? Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. Like, I, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, I think like we were talking about this movie as being uh, based on a series of novels and i think there's i think michael you said there's 20 novels is that right in, in yeah. the series by yeah. patrick o'brien i mean it, it's it's criminally underserved actually i think this period of history the late the late 18th century so if you think about like the american revolution french revolution into napoleonic wars sort of all the way up into really like the 1850s i, I guess like the wars in europe and like you say jacob you know um just heroic figures from so many different countries and what's really important just staying on the the european bias here this is the period of time where the the modern idea of national consciousness comes from this is this is where the, the modern idea of your national identity it all for most european countries or most of the large ones certainly a lot of it comes really really back to this back to napoleon like i've even had uh, political science lecturers in the past and stuff who have told me that like napoleon is the, the man most singularly responsible for the concept of the nation state you know yeah. uh, all of this kind of uh, um, sort of comes back to this point so it's a it's a, a rich vein that that film should tap a little bit more I think for story because you can do just about anything you know uh, it's it's ironic, really, considering Napoleon was famously a Corsican and had a terrible French accent yeah. a bit like myself yeah. you know <laughs> but yes. became emperor of the French didn't stop him. <laughs> Yeah, that he didn't let that hold him back. Yeah, yeah. On the lack of uh, content and type uh, and and such from this ty- uh, type of area, uh, I I I wasn't joking. Hornblower is a great series. Uh, it's basically made for TV uh, movies. They're like an hour and a half, two hours long. There's like eight that were made over a five year period, and uh, they were like the last one came out in 2003, started in 98. And they are on YouTube, so I've just been watching them on YouTube, and uh, they're quite good. Research, Jacob's research. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was so like, maybe Jacob, yeah, uh, maybe Jacob, a link in the description. Yeah, pop a pop a link in the description. Why not? Uh, because yeah, I was like, I don't even need to watch Master and Commander. I know what's going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, everyone's I got that. scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, is there anything any? final words on master and commander or any uh, fun quotes or anything like that uh sources obviously as well uh, that we want to mention here at the end yeah there's a, a few different sources like i i would probably finish on saying nelson uh, always remember nelson's words which was i never trust a corsican or a frenchman so he doubly didn't <laughs> trust napoleon you know um but if you're looking to to to, to get more detail on this time period then i would say that uh, a book by alan shome uh, that's s-c-h-o-m trafalgar um it kind of goes into the two years leading up to trafalgar what the hell was going on in the all over the world as these two superpowers struggled for supremacy um and as well as that napoleon uh, there's a N- napoleon biography as well which uh, i'll include in the in the in the show notes if in case anyone wants to learn more about that uh, interesting little frenchman I would uh, I would recommend uh, the Napoleonic Wars, which is uh, by Richard Holmes, and that came out last year, in the middle of last year, around July, June, possibly last year, which is uh, which is pretty good, and it gives a good um, 
it gives a good uh, sort of overview of um, what Napoleon is up to. There's lots of like maps in it, military maps. There's lots of like ships logs, all of that kind of stuff is all in there. It's pretty good stuff. Cool. So, uh, final word from me is that reviews of Real History are very much appreciated, and you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to showswhatyouknow.com for all of our other coverage, all our previous episodes and upcoming episodes, and our other shows where we discuss television shows in different contexts, maybe getting into more the history of the mob and things like that on Cut to Black, similar to our episode of The Irishman coming up soon. So you'll find all of that at showswhatyouknow.com. But besides that, uh, I believe that's pretty much it. So, uh, yeah, that's the end of the reel. Mm-hmm.